Um, let me pray and we'll look at the Bible together. Oh, Father God, thank you so much for your goodness. Uh, we thank you for the wonderful thing it is that you, the God of the universe, would speak to us in your word. And so we pray that you do that tonight. Father, please give us ears to hear what your word has to say and hearts ready to receive it. Please change us and transform us by your, by your word and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, well, tonight we come to the last chapter of Job, Job 42. And if you've been with us this last five or six weeks, we have been on one heck of a journey, uh, seeing, first of all, the, the depths of Job's suffering uh, and then the triumph of God as Job didn't curse God but instead turned to praise Him. And then after that, we saw pages and pages of discussion between Job and his really lousy friends. Uh, and then you saw this kind of escalating impatience from Job as he sat in his suffering, kind of, God, what are you doing? Why, God? Answer me, God, as he kind of became angrier as we went along. And then finally, last week, we saw God's answer. God showed up and his answer was, well, actually, Job, you sit there and I'll question you. Brace yourself like a man and I'll question you. You will answer me. Who are you, Job, to question the Almighty God. Do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like His? And so Job was silenced, we saw last week. Chapter 40, verses 4 and 5, he said, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. Now, I wonder, as we come to the end of chapter 41 and, and start off here in chapter 42, how are you left feeling from all of that? in awe, perhaps, humbled. God is very big and we are very small. He's so powerful. He's free. He does what He wants and He owes us nothing. He's no man's debtor. Now, there is a sense in which if you've been following along with the whole point of the book of Job up to this point, God would be totally within his rights to end the story at the end of chapter 41, wouldn't he? Tell Job how it is and then that's it. Job, I'm free. I'll do whatever I want. End of story. That would be a perfectly fine ending to the book of Job. Job's left humbled and God says that's it. But I wonder, as we've worked our way toward the end of the book in chapter 41... I wonder if anyone's been left feeling unsettled. You've seen Job battered by the suffering that he's endured and then we've seen him kind of battered by God's response in his answers and God, remember, is in his rights to do so. Logically, we know that God is free to do this. God is just, He is good, He is fair, He's powerful, He doesn't answer to anyone. So all this is right but I wonder if you're still left feeling a bit unsettled. What assurance do we have as His people that this God, the Almighty One, cares about us? That this God, the Almighty Powerful Ruler, will look after us, His people? Almighty, powerful, just, transcendent, unapproachable, unstoppable, but how will He use that might when it comes to me? I wonder if you're feeling any of that. 
Well, tonight here in chapter 42, friends, we have such beautiful news to add to our picture of God as we finish up this book. Because the God who is powerful and mighty and sovereign is abundantly merciful and rich in His grace to us. Now, you can see that really obviously, can't you? As you look toward the last half of our passage tonight, it's pretty obvious when you look at verses 10 to 17, as God literally doubles Job's fortunes there and He blesses the second half of his life even more than the first. We'll we'll come to that at the end. But here's the first and more subtle thing that we need to see tonight. This is a rich mercy of God, but it's not as obvious. This is, first of all, God's abundant mercy by giving a big view of God and a humble view of the self. Now, you can see that in verses 1 to 6 there, in chapter 42, 1 to 6. This is the fruit of the speeches that God's been hitting Job with. This is the fruit coming out in Job's life. And in fact, actually come back with me in the book and see how this unfolded, track with me so you can see it go down. Come back to chapter 31. Job's anger at God at this point has been building up and so he kind of comes to a climax of his last speech. Chapter 31, verse 35, Job says, "'Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I I sign now my defence.'" Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. And then down in verse 40, the words of Job ended. So Job's calling out to God, answer me God. Chapter 38, as we saw last week, God shows up and he does just like, he does just that. His reply thunders out of the storm. Two whole massive chapters, this overwhelming tidal wave. God is huge and Job is tiny. Now, here's where I want you to notice the transformation. 38, 39, God gives this enormous answer to Job. Have a look in 40 here and you can see Job beginning to change. Have a look at chapter 40, verse 4 and 5. Job answered the Lord, he says, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice, but I'll say no more. So here in 40, Job's response to God is a little bit of a non-response. It's a little bit like when a kid maybe oversteps the mark with their parents and they know they're in a lot of trouble, but they're still kind of a little bit angry at their parents, perhaps. The kid knows at this point they can't talk back to their parents, but at the same time, they're not going to talk and say much at all. So instead, they're like, I'll just give you some silence, but I'm not going to talk back. How can I answer you? I'll shut my mouth. I'll say no more. It's as if Job's gone from a sort of defiance, as he's thrown his questions at God, to now a silence in chapter 40. And so, God continues to press on. And in the next two chapters, 40 and 41, we saw Behemoth and Leviathan last week, another overwhelming tidal wave of God's hugeness and Job's tininess. And so now notice the transformation here in chapter 42. Now Job is humbled. Verse 2, he begins by offering up praise to God. After all of that, he says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. He declares the freedom of God, that he praises God. And verse 3, he admits he's been treading on holy ground. Verse 3, he says, You asked, who who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things that I did not understand, 
things too wonderful for me to know. And then comes repentance, verse 4. You said, listen now and I'll speak to you, I will question you and you shall answer me. Well, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job has come face to face with God and he's humbled, utterly humbled, he repents. You see the transformation that's gone on in Job up to this point. It's really stark, it's massive what's happened. God's done two huge things for Job. Number one, he's elevated Job's view of the Almighty. He's helped Job to see who he is. But second, God has gifted Job with a correspondingly small view of himself. He's humbled him with what he's shown him. And so here's the point, guys. Verses 1 to 6 here in chapter 42 is not kind of the, the mean rough bit as Job repents of the heavy words he's heard before God begins to then give him blessings in the end. Verses 1 to 6 is the beginning of the blessing in Job's life. In fact, I want to say it's actually the primary blessing that's been brought about in Job's life. Remember, all the way back at the beginning of this book, chapter 1, Job was already rich. He was already doing pretty well for himself. He was happy. (laughs) But God has taken him on this huge journey, this incredible thing that he's gone through, and here we're beginning to see the fruit of it in his character, in his life. And so now Job sees God with a wonderful new clarity. He sees who God is more clearly. That's a a great and wonderful gift. You're still not so sure? Maybe, well, I want you to notice another curious little detail here. Who had more to answer to before God? Who was in more trouble with God, Job or his friends? Well, the friends were, weren't they? In in verses 7 and 8, it clearly says that they were wrong and that God is overtly angry with them. So Job's friends are in more hot water than Job. But who is the one that God spends four chapters addressing face-to-face as He unleashes this incredible piece of teaching from God? Well, it's Job. Job's the recipient of all of that. Now, that would have been a terrifying experience to be confronted by God in that way. But those words are also an abundant gift of God's mercy and grace, both to Job and also to us as we go through it tonight. It's a shake-up from God. It's a rewiring of how you see God and how you see yourself. It may have even landed like a rebuke, certainly for Job, and I imagine for many of us, but that's not God being mean or harsh. It's an act of love. Because the fruit that you can see here in chapter 42 is so precious. It's a good thing. done something on my iPad that I don't understand. I'm very sorry. Please go away. I think that'll do. Seeing yourself clearly is actually, it's really important, isn't it? To have a clear picture of yourself. And Michael Scott from The Office, um, his greatest enemy is that he has zero self-awareness. Now, if you love the show, 
It's because of that. It's what makes him the funniest character on TV. And if you hate the show, it's probably for the same reason, because he's got no self-awareness, and so he lives and acts in a way that is completely oblivious to what everyone else is thinking going around him. It's almost painful to watch him as he lives completely out of kilter with reality, right? Michael's problem is that he doesn't see him, he doesn't have a clear sense of himself and so he's incapable of relating to everyone else around him on the show. Now, I hope none of us here tonight have that same level of lack of clarity on ourselves such that we can't relate to anyone else around us. But when it comes to seeing ourselves clearly in relation to God, guys, we're all Michael Scott unless God steps in and does something in us does something for us. Unless God shows up and humbles us by His Word, unless He blasts us with exactly the sort of things that we've been looking at these last few weeks, we will never understand who God is clearly and so we won't relate to Him rightly. And so it's a rich and wonderful thing to see God clearly, to encounter His might... (laughs) to be shaken by His sovereign rule, to be put in our place and told, God owes you nothing. (laughs) Without without that clarity, we'll just slide straight back into a Michael Scott level of zero self-awareness toward us and God and who He is. So, when things don't go your way in life, it can be really easy to start to turn toward God and say, you know, Why are you doing this? How dare you do this, God? Not why, but how dare you, God? I'm a Christian, I follow God, I serve you, I'm on your team, you've let me down, God. Or or when encountered with, with sobering truths in His Word, sometimes our attitude can slide into entirely the wrong place. God, how how dare you send people to hell? God, how, how come you don't save everyone? How dare you not save everyone? Now, it's, it's okay to ask good questions, questions like, how come God doesn't save everyone? You might ask that question. But if our posture to God in that goes from a genuine question wanting to listen to, to God to instead being unwilling to hear His answers and kind of almost putting him on the stand and putting ourselves in the judge's seat and saying, God, you need to conform to my expectations and if you don't, you're in trouble with me. God, you need to behave and be who I need you to be. Well, if that's where we find ourselves, we need an experience like Job's. And so, if this time in Job has been at times confronting or even hard, if, if there's been things that you've been learning about God that have felt like they've had some rough edges for you maybe, that's okay. I want to say that's okay because this is a, actually a mercy from God that He would confront you with who He is, that He loves you enough to humble you in this way. So, your right view of God creates a clear picture of yourself and leads to living in God's world rightly. I wonder as well if all of this might help us in what we desire and what we pray for ourselves and the people around us. See, what kind of things do we tend to pray for in life? 
Good exam results, success in that job interview, health, get the girl, bless the marriage. All those things are fine. Success, good marks, jobs, winning, health, happiness, they're not bad things. Um, But often those are the sort of things that actually lead to pride and self-reliance, aren't they? When we get everything and win everything and so on. And that's actually one step away from, from hell. Now, let's be clear, the Scriptures encourage us to pray about anything and everything, to bring all of our requests to God. So, feel free to pray those kind of things, I do as well. But I wonder sometimes, is our view of prayer too small? The things we desire for ourselves and those around us, a little short-sighted, limited. See, when hard times do come in life, when they come, what kind of things should you pray? God, stop it, make it stop, make it stop, make it stop, sure, pray that. We don't want to wish bad on ourselves. But is there more than just simply, God, make it stop, that we might be able to pray? How about, God, in this time, please work your will in me. Please, through this time, give me a bigger view of you. God, please humble me through this. God, help me to love you more and the things of this life less. Suffering is the best soil for God to to grow the character that He wants to see in you. And so, there's God's first abundant mercy to us. It's giving us a big view of Himself and a small view of ourselves. Here's the second one that comes straight out of verses 7 to 9. God's abundant mercy of forgiveness and a right standing with Him. So, have a look there. Verse 7, it sets the scene. God has got a bone to pick with these friends. Look at verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, He said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, because you've not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has. God says, you've done the wrong thing, this needs to be made right. But wonderfully, have a look at verse 8. God provides the way for that to happen. So, God said, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. And so, they do it. They follow steps one by one and God accepts Job's prayer in verse 9. Sacrifice offered, Job intercedes in prayer and God forgives them. Isn't that overwhelmingly gracious of God? God doesn't owe these guys forgiveness, it's not His job to forgive them as if He has to. Even if they'd come to God crawling on their hands and knees, begging for a way back to Him, God doesn't owe it to them to forgive them, but He grants it. But not just grants forgiveness, in fact... He actually shows them the problem that they have and then He provides the solution and the way forward and so they're forgiven. Friends, is this not how our good God treats us in the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? We, like these friends, have sinned against God, we've rejected Him, He doesn't owe us forgiveness, it's not His job as if He has to and yet in God's kindness, He's gracious enough to show us that we have a problem, to show us that we've sinned and then He provides a way 
He provides a solution in Jesus. He gives us the sacrifice, Jesus himself. And in fact, he provides a mediator, just like in these verses. He provides the better priest, Jesus. He gives us everything we need so that we might be brought back to God. He provides it all, all out of his overwhelming kindness and goodness and graciousness. So friends, guys, if you're new to this stuff, if you're checking out the things of Jesus, you're checking out the, the person Jesus, the things in the Bible, don't miss the headline about who God is. God is full of love and mercy. He's, he's kind enough to show us that we have a problem and He gives us a solution in Jesus. He's done it all. And so guys, if you're wondering what Christianity is about, if you have any question about that, God, it's not self-improvement. It's not be good and then God will bless you. That's actually what Job's bad friends thought and they had it so badly wrong. The message of the gospel is you're a sinner and you desperately need forgiveness. But in Jesus, God has done everything for you to come back. And so repent of your sin and trust in Jesus and what He's done for you. Come back to God. He's full of mercy. He'll have you back. You know what? God's mercy, there's a whole bunch of other ways you can see God's mercy and grace in these verses, just in verses 7 and 8 9. You notice what God calls Job in these verses. Verse 7 and again in verse 8, He calls Job, my servant Job. That's what He called Job back in chapter 1, when He was showing off Job to Satan. He says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. This is a position of honour. And that's what God is now saying again about Job here at the end of the book, after everything that's happened, the mercy of God there. And not only that, God actually gives Job vindication in front of his friends. He says, Eliphaz and the boys, you have not spoken the truth about me at all, you got it wrong, Job was right, you were wrong, he calls them out. Man, that must have felt good for Job, don't you reckon, to finally hear that on the mouth of God. Remember how in earlier chapters, Job was crying out for someone who would plead his case, who would say he's innocent, he's not suffering because of sin and here is God Himself graciously doing that for Job. Even though Job has not acted perfectly or spoken perfectly, God's just rebuked him for some of that but overall, God steps in and says, Job was right and friends, you were wrong, you were wrong and what's more, it's, it's like God puts the delicious sauce on all of this by making Job the mediator between him and the friends and God. Job is the one who must intercede and pray, which is just delicious, isn't it? You know, these friends, they've been abusing Job, they've been saying all this rough stuff about him, you need to repent, you're a sinner, Job, and if you will do that, God will have you back, but it's your fault, and then God turns up and says, you're the sinner, you friends are the ones who messed it up, and you need Job to pray for you. And so this is Job's vindication as well, he's proved right in this moment. Another mercy of God to Job. And another little small mercy, I don't know if you saw it in verses 7, 8, 9, Did you see how prayer works? It's quite bizarre if you look at the details there. Have a look. God comes to the friends and He says, you need forgiveness. You need to make a sacrifice, then go to Job. Job will pray this thing for you and I, God, will accept His prayer. 
And so they go to all of that and God accepts the prayer. Now here's the point, God doesn't need our prayers. Don't hear me say God doesn't want our prayers, He does, but He doesn't require them. He actually knows what Job is going to pray before He even prays the prayer and then He answers the prayer. God doesn't need our prayers, He knows all things, He knows what you'll pray before you even pray it as well. But mercifully, God chooses to capture us up in what He's doing in the world such that He hears our prayers and listens to us. He, he works in us such that we'd pray to Him and depend on Him. He causes us to bring our requests and prayers to Him and then in real time, God hears our prayers and responds and changes what He will do based on our prayers. The God of the universe has chosen to capture us up in all of that. What a privilege, what a mercy prayer is that God would choose to involve us in His work in the world in that way. All right, we've seen God's abundant mercy in a couple of ways. Number one, by granting a big view of Himself and a humbling view of ourselves. And number two, in giving us forgiveness and a right standing with Him. Here's the third and final thing to see in this passage. God's abundant mercy, blessing in the end. Now, in some ways, this is the most obvious one that just kind of jumps off the page here in this passage but I actually think it's also the trickiest one for us to land rightly so let's have a look at it verse 10 it's like the heading of the whole section after Job had prayed for his friends the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before now in the verses that follow that's exactly what God does it says he doubles it all you have a look in a second but notice before we look at that verse 11 Job is still a man recovering from an enormous tragedy that has happened to him in verse 11 there. Have a look, verse 11, all his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house and they comforted and consoled him over all the trouble that the Lord had brought on him and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. His family come and they comfort him in his real pain but in the midst of all of that, This suffering is real and it lands and it hurts, but in the midst of that, God has still been blessing Job through this whole process. And so you read on in verse 12 as he begins to literally double Job's physical fortunes. Uh, 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camel, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 donkeys. Now, did anyone this week, as you perhaps read this passage, did anyone go back and fact check this in chapter 1? Put your hand up if you did. Some of you are sticklers for details. Yeah, a few of us were like, "What? how much do you have in chapter 1? Exactly half of what we see here in 42 is the answer. Verse 13, it mentions that he has seven more sons and three more daughters. And, but this time he actually gets to see these children have children and their children have children and children have children. Verse 15, he's so wealthy that he actually gives an inheritance not just to his sons, which was a tradition, but to his daughters who would usually get their inheritance through the in-laws. Job's got enough that it's overflowing to everyone. Verse 16, Job lives to see all of this because he lives 140 years, which is roughly twice the average life expectancy of a person. And so it all gets doubled it's incredible, literal abundance of blessing. Now, here's the important thing to stop and think about. It's really important. You can undo the whole book if you get this wrong. Why? Why does God do all of this at the end of the book? Is this some sort of a reward for Job? 
Job, you've done real good, so here's, you get all the good stuff now. I'm going to reward your good behaviour. Because if it is, then we should probably crack the code, work out what Job did right and go after it as well, so we can get all of this ourselves. Now, many people think that this is how God... This is, people, many people think that way about God. God is a God of blessing, and so if you play your cards right, do the right things then this will be you as well. Not in a literal double your camels kind of way, but the prosperity gospel literally teaches, come to God, do the right thing, do good, and you, will, you can expect a reward here and now in this life. God will bless you here and now if you play your cards right. That's the promise. Now, is that right? No. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. The whole book of Job up to this point has been tearing that idea to pieces. That's just Christian karma. It's, it's, it's what his friends have been saying all along. If you do good, God blesses you. If you do bad, you get bad stuff from God. That's the whole system his friends were on about all along. And God's just torn that whole thing to pieces. It's the, it's the absolutely wrong message that Job's friends had for, for Job. It's not the gospel and it's not even the message of the book of Job here. Instead, I want us to catch there's something much more wonderful going on here. So what was the point when we got to the end of chapter 41? What was the point up to that, up to then? What was the point? God is free. He's sovereign. He answers to no one. He doesn't owe anyone anything. Not Job, not you, not anyone. And in fact, it's really important to catch this, Job's response to God happens in chapter 42 before God has poured out any of this physical blessing on him. Job turns in awe and wonder and praise of God in verses 1 to 6 in chapter 42 and he does it before God has given him any of his stuff back. So that moment's actually the the vindication of God where God is proved right. Satan's accusation, what was Satan's accusation at the very start of the book? It's that God only loves, Job only loves you, God, because of all the stuff you give him. And then here we get to the end of it all, and Job is praising God well before God's done anything with his physical circumstances. He's still sitting on the ash pile of his life, and he turns to God and says, you are amazing, I praise you. And so here's the amazing thing that chapter 42 shows us. God is mighty and free, doesn't owe anyone anything. And yet, in his freedom, from that place, he chooses to abundantly pour out his mercy and blessing. Not because we earn it, not because he owes it to us, but because he is good and gracious, and generous. So the huge view we get of God in chapters 38 to 41, it's, it's wonderful, but without a clarity on what's God going to do with all this power and freedom, it can feel a bit scary. Do you have an arm like God? Does your voice thunder like His? You might be a bit worried until you see the heart of God here. Praise God that he is free and doesn't owe anyone anything and yet in his freedom, he's full of mercy and love. It's extravagant. 
the love that he lavishes on us, his people. And so how should Job chapter 42 shape our expectations of the Christian life today? Well, I want to say, as Christians, we can expect the same treatment from God. If you're in Christ, God is your loving Heavenly Father, it will mean blessing in the end for you too. But here's the thing, timing is everything. The timing of that is really important to get. Now, we had a read, Maddie read from us from, from James chapter 5, which is a really helpful passage to get our head around what's going on in Job. And so come back to James 5, which was read out, because Job here in James 5, he's held out as a model for us as Christians, someone that we should copy and be like. But I want you to notice the timeline, the when of the blessing. Have a look at James chapter 5, pick it up, verse 7, I'll read it again. James 5 verse 7, he says, be patient then brothers and sisters, patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another brothers and sisters or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now, as you hear that, what things are the same for Job as for us today? What things are the same? Well, it's a lot of things, isn't it? We need to be patient, like Job was. We need to persevere, like Job did. We can expect, verse 10, suffering, like Job experienced. And verse 11, it's the same today. God is full of compassion and mercy. All of that was true for Job, and it's true for us today. But what's different? It's the timing. Timing is everything. See, what are we as Christians waiting for? What moment when our blessing arrives in its fullness are we waiting for? Well, it's not a doubling of your fortunes and camels. Verse 7 and 8, it's the return of Jesus. The return of Jesus. Our hope, God's promises to us, are tied to the return of Jesus. It's that moment in history that we're waiting for. There's simply no promise to you as a Christian today that God will bless you materially here and now. Now, He might. In fact, for many of us, He has, really, if you are living on the Central Coast. But that's not a promise of God for every Christian. In fact, we're actually told to expect the opposite. We're told to expect suffering and trouble and persecution. As James says here, because we bear the name of Jesus, because we're a Christian, we can expect that. You can count on it. But you can also count on this. Blessing in the end. When Jesus comes back for us, His people, you will know blessing that completely outstripped anything that Job saw. It'll make His blessing look like rags in comparison to what's to come. Timing is everything. And so, guys, I want to say the prosperity gospel, that teaching I talked about before, is wrong. 
It's just not true. It gets the gospel wrong. But I want to stop on that for a second and take us deeper and think a bit more about this together. Because not only is it not true, I actually want to suggest it's really dangerous as well. I'll show you why. Imagine I come up to a classroom of kindy kids, right? And I'm their teacher and I say, hey kids, guess what? I've got a, your parents have got a really good surprise for you. Tomorrow, instead of school, all your parents, they're going to take you on an amazing holiday to Disneyland. That's what your parents are doing tomorrow. No school, Disneyland instead. And the kids get pumped. They listen to the teacher like, I can't believe my parents have promised this. This is amazing. And then they wake up the next morning and mum and dad boot them out the door to school as usual. What happens at that point? Well, at best, they might just get angry at me, their teacher, who's lied to them. But more likely, at worst, they've bought into the promise that, that I said was from their parents. And so now they're angry at their parents. They're disappointed. They're wondering why their parents didn't come through for them. It's a train wreck if I did that. The problem with the prosperity gospel is it puts promises in the mouth of God that He never made. It says, if you follow God and live His way and pray this way and do these things, you'll be happy and healthy and rich and you will be blessed here and now. You will get it now. If you give your money lots to church, then Jesus will give you even more money back here and now. Now, let's assume that these people have the best intentions in mind as they teach this stuff because they perhaps really believe it themselves. But sincere or not, can you see how devastating that can be for a person? To grab a bunch of sincere Christians and tell them that God has promised you that He will bless you in this life if you do the right things and play it all right. What happens if God actually hasn't promised those things? And what happens if God doesn't deliver on the promises that He never made but you've made on His behalf? What happens when instead of health, it's a diagnosis of cancer? Or instead of wealth, you lose your job and it's unemployment and poverty? What happens when depression sets in? Well, either you get angry at God and you turn your back on Him and say, you let me down, God, you didn't hold up the deal. Or perhaps you turn in on yourself and you say, I haven't prayed hard enough, I didn't believe enough, I didn't have enough faith and you make it about your mistakes. That's dangerous. It's toxic. It's deadly. So the prosperity gospel, it isn't true. Second, it's actually really dangerous. And finally, I want to point us to this as we finish. It misses the fact that God is actually doing something more, much more bigger and more beautiful in you. So if God's only goal for your life was to save you in Jesus and then after that give you a really comfy chair to sit in until you wait for Him to come back, if God's goal was, was just that you'd be saved and then happily wait and be as comfortable as you can until you get to heaven, well then the prosperity gospel makes a lot of sense. But Job, the whole book of Job shows us that God is doing something much bigger and more beautiful in our lives. If all God wanted for Job was to make sure that he was comfortable and happy, he probably could have skipped chapters 2 through to 42, couldn't he? Just leave it at chapter 1 and call it a day. But God has taken Job on this journey through some incredible 
dark valleys. But still in the midst of that, God is blessing Job in the hard times as well. God is bringing glory to himself as as Job's obedience points to God's goodness and, and Job continues to follow him even though he's been stripped of everything. It brings God glory and God is doing something in Job as well as he renovates Job's picture of who God is. Humbles him, reveals himself to him, which we've already seen is such a gift So friends, the prosperity gospel is wrong, it's dangerous and it misses the big and more beautiful thing that God is doing in your life. It actually has too small a view of God's blessing. And so praise God for His wisdom that it's better and bigger than ours. We follow a God of such wisdom and might and abundant mercy. I want you to spend some time reflecting on who our God is. As you do that, I'll get the band to come up and and join us but take a minute now to reflect on who our God is perhaps even pray to him yourself and we're going to spend some time praising him in song Let's pray. Our mighty and merciful Father God, we praise you for this, for this and this alone because of who you are in your might and power and wisdom and glory and in your grace and mercy and love. We thank you and praise you for that. Amen.